And I'm Bill Bohr. And today we're going to talk about something we promised to talk about uh, at, when we talked about hell. <laughs> That's right. It's a good segue. Then we wound up posting another episode of our Solid Gold Jesus series, which has been uh, has been played to critical acclaim, especially by our friend Steve Lipples, who's mm-hmm. out in central Pennsylvania. Emphasis on critical. We're We're very excited. We have a... New troll, and, uh, yes, and he's wearing it as a badge of honor. He really is. I mean, he's really. Um, and we're trying to come up with a nickname for him because we we really feel that it might be a room for a regular appearance. Yeah. Of, of angry Steve or uh, uh, disgruntled Steve. What did Lindy suggest? Spear, uh, spiteful Steve. Spiteful Steve. So, at any rate, Steve. Thank Salty. You. Thank you, Steve Lipples. Salty Steve. That was my son Peter's response. So we're excited about this and. Uh, um, so thank you for, for caring enough to, uh, respond. Yeah. And today we want to talk a little bit about online dating. Yes. You wrote a really interesting article. It was in several Mockingcast posts a while ago. I'm sorry, Mockingbird post. Uh, tell us a little bit about it. So it was called Faith, the Future and the Frightening Reality of Online Dating. And I really would encourage you. It's, it's a very thoughtful and, uh, wide sweeping article that's, more than worth the time to read. So basically, I mean, the reason I wrote this was I, I had re- I've been thinking about something for a while that Peter Lightheart uh, brought to my attention that, there we go, that um, basically Peter Lightheart, a uh, great theologian and biblical exegete and just all around, and a guy with 10 kids. I think he's like 6'8 with 10 kids. He's an interesting guy. He, he occupies a unique spot on the theological spectrum. Yes, there's not really a phylum or genus to quite. (laughs) um, But he wrote a piece about how in the end of the book of Revelation, there's two visions of the holy city. And you get uh, the first vision you get is the holy city perfected. The second one you get is the holy city not yet perfected. And he was talking about how human being is so future oriented. I think there's something to that. Like so much of our reality is, is, oriented toward the hope of what might be, but also the fear of what might be. Right. And, and there's another piece that like, I was rattling in my head by Robert Jensen. It says, you know, like when the future comes to us in a terrifying or oppressive way, it's because it's like a civil court penalty or something like if this, then this. So it's this sort of where the future, the scary kind of future is your, your, your past mistakes always determine what goes on. And he thinks when the future comes as a promise, it's unconditional. It actually frees you from the past because it allows you to forgiveness, unconditionality of regard and and relationship, allow you to begin again. You know, whereas a a, a tyrannical kind of view of the future uh, always locks you in the past, a view of the future as promise, like, recreates the past. Uh, So I was thinking about all that, and I was thinking also about 
lots of friends who are ang- online dating and find it exhausting, like anxiety producing. It get, it makes them kind of, they just like, there's an increased level of suspicion, uh, particularly my female friends, that guys are sort of stringing them along and, and this sort of thing. And so it made me remember another article called the, called Love and Its Discontents, Irony, Reason, and Romance by a woman who's a sociologist of emotion. And she basically says that, that the problem is like re, the whole modern story is, is this enamoring with reason. And yet the, the realization that it can strip us of everything and our ability to have re, things like experience, like real love, real religious transcendence, things like this. So the emperor winds up kind of having no clothes. We wind up, we love modernity. We love iPhones and penicillin and refrigeration and all the knowledge we get. And yet, uh, when you turn modernity and its algorithmic powers to romance, it seems to like almost squelch the capacity for uh, a kind of romance. I mean, maybe we could argue a romanticized view of romantic love, but it kind of squelches the capacity for romantic love because you're, you know, doing all this like anxiety ridden checking and is this the right person? And, you know, so instead of something organically kind of developing, all of the pressure of is this going to work out winds up on the first date, which usually ruins it. Well, you know, it's interesting. Of course, romantic love arguably is a construct of the Middle Ages. Uh, and so... Which for you, it's like the long, the good old days have long since passed <laughs> in the Middle Ages. I mean, that's... Well, well it's interesting. Love, you know, you, you love is... You know, the philosophers refer to love. There's ancient love poetry in, in almost all cultures. And certainly... Uh, it's in the scriptures and, and what the move of particularly the Apostle Paul and, and the writer uh, of the Johannine literature, you know, there's a unique move in, in how we understand God's love. And, and, and yet this idea that dating has become like a job interview and you have to fill out a resume in order to get even in the door in the date uh, I think is problematic in lots of ways. Uh, in this article, um, the one about love and its discontents, uh, she says, you know, she looks about like after she talks about the Middle Ages and romantic love, and she says, compare this tradition with the following quip by Candace Bushnell, the celebrated author of the column that was in, that inspired the worldwide famous television series Sex in the City. When was the last time you heard someone say, I love you, without tagging on the inevitable, if unspoken, as a friend? When was the last time you saw two people gazing in each other's eyes without thinking, yeah, right? When was the last time you heard someone announce, I am truly madly in love, without thinking, just wait until Monday morning? (laughs) (laughs) It's just, you know, Candace Bushnell expresses here a thoroughly self-conscious, supremely ironic, and disenchanted approach to love. As witnessed by the emergence of the genre of chick lit literature geared to women about the difficulties of relationships, modern love has become the privileged site for the trope of irony. The rationalization of love is at the heart of the new ironic structure of romantic feeling, which marks the move from an enchanted to a disenchanted cultural definition of love. Well, I think part of that is a little bit of sexual exhaustion, too. I, I mean, uh, the sexual revolution come and gone. Oh, I thought you may just know people that are having so much sex that they're exhausted. <laughs> I, was well, like, I was like, wow, we have racy listeners. I didn't realize that. Well, you know, in some levels, uh, yes, on both both ends of those things. I mean, it, it, everything has become sexualized, including romance and love, 
that I think we've kind of worn it out a bit. And I think, um, like most things in our lives, we feel like, well, technology can make this better. Now, let me let me say in defense of computer dating, uh, what kind of alternatives do people have? Uh, you know, for instance, uh, you're busy, you're working, you're having a career, you don't want to hang out in bars. I mean, it, it can be a tool for good as well. I think uh, it's the way people communicate. People communicate through social media. They, they're used to having uh, all kinds of technological access to people. It would make sense then that we could use these tools for good. Um, but what you seem to be saying and, and your article is that this kind of approach to dating is uniquely um, malfitted for the, for the whole process. Yeah, if, if, if Jensen is right and the future either comes to us with it making a demand on us that, hey, if you, if you, if, if X, then Y, you know, you, you've got to measure up to this or this expectation. And if you don't, that's going to forever carry on with you. Or it comes to us offering us something like a promise, like unconditional love and regard. And that's really what we want. We want a sort of, con we want somebody to look at us, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and love us um, for who we are rather, you know, like, but, you know, in any romantic, in any romantic endeavor, uh, whether it's uh, late modernity or before then, uh, if we're not talking arranged marriages, there's, although maybe there's some kind of dynamic here too, but there's this kind of, hey, I want you to love me unconditionally. So I'm going to try to get your conditional acceptance by sort of painting a picture, an ideal picture of myself. Then hopefully you start to love me so much that I can let that facade down and actually show you who I really am. And that's, I mean, that's like a dynamic that I think just happens in getting to know each other. And I think when that happens and you do let your guard down, uh, there's a real beauty to that. But I think the hard thing is that with online dating, there's so much evaluation that's just f like baked into the front end of it that it's almost always the future comes with, in the, with this tyrannical demand. Like, oh my God. And then the other thing is, I think the one of the things she points out in this article is that having so much potential knowledge about people, right? Compatibility and all this stuff also makes you judge yourself more when you, if you make bad choices, how can I be so stupid? How can I like, so there's, there's all this kind of just stuff baked into it that I think it really makes knowing and being known challenging. Again, I'm not like a, I'm not a technophobe. I'm more of a technophile. Uh, I'm not saying it's like, uh, it's absolutely beyond redemption or anything like that. But I, I do think it's, it's fraught with complications that are very difficult to, uh, to navigate. Well, it's funny, you know, we're trying to outmaneuver uh, our biology. You know, our biology has all kinds of wirings towards attractions, uh, uh, many of them unconscious, in order to keep the species going forward. And it's kind of, it's an interesting kind of dynamic because, I mean, how many people um, have you known who've fallen in love and then become friends? That, that can happen. Uh, but then we know a lot of people also who, over the course of, well, they went to high school together, but I didn't really know them until we came, you know, we both graduated. Are we, uh, we're in the same neighborhood and eventually, you know, we kind of ran in each other. I guess that's more the old way of doing it. But I've done a lot of ways where people kind of knew each other. Oh, uh, he was my brother's friend. Or, yeah, I knew she was in that sorority. But it wasn't until later down the road that that acquaintance and, and and in some levels 
a kind of track record of kind of knowing who this person is, prevent it, you know, then there's an opportunity for there to be a romance to develop. That is how Lindy and I, my wife's relationship developed. I and mean, we were friends, we were close friends, had a lot of fun together and kind of developed a deep attraction for each other. But I think the, the thing that's lovely about those situations is, yeah, you actually sometimes are actually more yourself. Uh, when, when things develop, like say with somebody, a colleague or something or a friend, uh, oftentimes the way that love begins is closer to the unconditional because like, they've seen a lot of you. Like you're not putting on your dating self, you know, you're not putting on your avatar or, you know, it's, you know, that, and that's the other thing too about online dance fasting. If we've got an inner self and then a self that's like, you know, that everybody's seeing and we think we have this kind of neurotic inner self that's thinking all these things. Then we've got this avatar self that's like this creation of a curated social media thing that's like, it's related to us, but it's not really us. It's, it's, it's some other thing. Right. Well, that, that's probably true of any, projection of ourselves, even in a room at a cocktail party, the self we're putting forward may or may not be the real self. I mean, I think that's always, you don't really get to know anybody until there's there's a period of time in which you can begin to navigate, well, not only what is the true self, but okay, here are the different selves this person has. Somewhere under there, I hope there is a is the better self emerging. I mean, that's that's more like what we are as humans. And you know, the other thing that's interesting is that like, there's all these studies that show about the effect of sort of like, like you'll say some things on Facebook or Twitter you wouldn't say normally, like that your, your filters kick, kick in um, much more rapidly in interpersonal interactions, but you'll do it. And, and, you know, we do like when somebody and the, the internet is a great place to get an echo chamber and, and short term, when you feel validated with a frustration that like it brings some psychological re- like relief, but long term studies show it, it, it has a really deleterious effect on mental health. You get more depressed, more angry. Right. And so I think the same thing is like people, like I know so many women where guys like who they've met online, like just after several dates and some real connection, uh, at least there's something about, they just disappear. Like, right. and there's not this sort of, it's so, some of it's like, it's called ghosting. Yeah. Right. They call it ghosting. So it's like, you take off some of the anxiety on the front end. Okay. Am I going to get rejected? Well, I'm swiping. So I avoid the rejection process. So I'm not super invested. So I kind of just like, I don't mind. I, I kind of, I kind of avoid the letdown process too. And it's, I think it becomes so e- so much easier. Now you can, anybody can dehumanize anybody, any inter- interpersonal reaction, inter- um, interaction, but I think it just becomes that much easier. Well, I think too, you know, as you said, I mean, uh, you can be sitting in your bedroom late at night with your uh, personal computer or your, or your iPhone talking to someone in their bedroom and you can have an intimate conversation with someone you've never actually Right, you've met never gone out with. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah and it's I a think, whole, yeah. And I think you're right. I think that it, in some levels, uh, it does, it creates an, a hyper intimacy without ever actually giving an opportunity for human connection. And like you said, people will say things in these kind of mediums that they would never say in the real world. You know, but one of the things I'm thinking, there's so many people, for instance, who delayed marriage for professional development. I think uh, um, maybe, you know, as women, for instance, who've gotten into the workforce, women who would have naturally first looked for a, you know, a life mate, you know, build a career and build a profession. And uh, 
you know, sometimes it gets to a point, okay, they're at a certain stage in their life and, and they're not around peers necessarily at work or in the profession that they want to be with. And then you think of how many people are newly singled, uh, mostly because of divorce, but because of, uh, you know, um, the spouse dying as well. And so you have a whole group of people in their 40s and 50s and 60s who in previous generations would not have been alone. Now, they may have not been happy. Okay, that's two different things. But so there's a sense where let's say you have a 50-year-old woman uh, or a 50-year-old man who's professional. Uh, they maybe have had a marriage in the past that didn't work. And they don't necessarily work around people that are natural dating uh, folks for them. Uh, they're not really interested in that stage of life, going out and partying all night, hanging out and things like that. Uh, so I do think that um, there has to be a way that, you know, how do we help people like that? What kind of advice do we give the folks? We do what the Mormons do. If you're a Mormon and you're single, you all have to go to the same uh, – Church, same to like, and there's one married person there, the bishop of the congregation, and then they just couple them up. Like, you can't go to the now. I, I'm I, they really do do that, but I don't, I'm not advocating. Well, that. there's a new movie coming out that we both want to go see called, entitled Lobster, and part of the premise is you have to be married or connected or in a relationship. And if you're not, you're sent to a prison, which is really a four star hotel, and you have 45 days in order to find someone to be a life partner. If you don't find that person, then you get turned into an animal of your choice. And this has gotten great reviews. It does get great reviews. So John C. Rye, there's, there's some great characters. So if anybody wants to sponsor us and buy us movie tickets, we will mention you in the podcast and we will give a review of the film. And we will promote the film. We'll promote the film. Yeah, if the, if the filmmakers want to sponsor us. So uh, this side of sending someone to a four-star prison uh, to find someone, what are some, I guess, redemptive ways that was the first time we ever just hocked our airtime. Like we, we did. did, we we did. Just, I, I, it just hit me for there. I was like, wait, we're just like, that's, dude, we're really becoming commercial like horse. I mean, that's <laughs> like great. I mean, this is our way. To, this is our way to like maybe eventually being corporately controlled. Well, uh, and when the story is told in the uh, postscript, when did they start to lose their souls? It was episode whatever. It, exactly. It was like when they, it was they were, they were begging the audience to buy the movie tickets. <laughs> But anyway, let's get back. I mean, because I think we have to try to say, um, you know, this is a tool that can be used for great good or great evil uh, and a lot of stuff in between. So what would be some guidelines if you're going to use this medium um, for for it to be a, a more positive or at least a less, um, I don't even know, you know, a, a less dehumanizing experience? Well, first of all, I think this is going to sound like a weird thing. I, let me confess something I've done. I've actually rewritten friends' profiles for them, and they did a little better. Like, uh, who's the guy with the nose? Um, the character? Uh, oh, uh, Cesar Dubojack. Yeah, or, I was the Dubojack. Yeah. Uh, sometimes, like, I think part of it too is like uh, present yourself in a way that really authentically tells your story, right? So, like, I think sometimes, a, I think guys sometimes just like don't say anything. Hey, you know, you're hot, cool. What's up? Like, you know. Like, Actually, present yourself, and I think sometimes women uh, don't do a good job. Or the, most of the, actually, the people I've written stuff for have been female. Uh, it, like Lindy and I have worked on it together. Matchmaker, uh, matchmaker, exactly. Make yeah, me a match. and it, and they and they got you know like some interact. But I think some of it is like, is like be able to tell your story in a way that's authentic, so that you're really like 
this is who I am. And so somebody, again, like, so that someone actually would have a sense that of who you are in a way that like shows that, Hey, I'm really putting some effort into telling my own story. Cause I want someone that takes my story seriously and I want, and I want to take their seriously. Yeah, I just have this image of you putting a salmon around a woman's neck and sending them into uh, Yellowstone Park. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I, I would maybe go, and and again, I think that's that's good that you're doing that. I think that's a good a good. Advice. We're not doing it regularly. If I was going to do it regularly, I'd start charging. Like uh, I was, I th- no, I've thought about that. I've thought about that. But the day Scott became a capitalist, uh, that's the other thing. If you want Bill and I to rewrite your profile, <laughs> if you want to sponsor the show. If you don't sponsor the show for like a $25 contribution, we will take a look at your profile and we'll rewrite it. Uh, and, and, and if you don't get at least like two dates out of it, then we'll refund your money. There we go. Well, uh, I think the idea of, of having people who know you uh, being a part of that process you know, if they're gonna, if you're gonna go to all the trouble of having people who know you help write your process, maybe you could also ask them, hey, can you introduce me to people you think that might, that I might? You could also well? do that. Yeah, what, also... A, what a strange way that is. I, I think the other thing, you know, the 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 one writer that you quoted uh, did a contrast between irony and playfulness. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think to me, uh, taking it much lighter. I mean, in other words, uh, treating it more as a playful thing. Uh, now that may or may not work in the in the marketing world, but I think. Naming it for what it is, and uh, and you know, if you can, if you can match your rhetoric. In other words, you, if you can kind of say, "Yes, I'm doing this," and don't really, you know, it's kind of a funny thing to be doing. And I'm interested in just getting to know people for for you know for some fun and and just to to tie, somehow deescalate it. Uh, if you could do that, I think then that might be one thing that would be good, not only for you, but for the people you might meet. I, I think that's great advice. I think that, that, yeah, I think because the the playfulness, like, I mean, some of the, the, the I mean, all the anxiety and freighting on the front end of the process, I think, is is because it feels like a job interview. Like, it doesn't feel like uh, enchantment. It feels like, and like, you know, uh, somewhere between, you know, salesmanship or an entrapment that sometimes you know so <laughs> i think that like that's i think you're absolutely right and i think the other thing what makes that easier and one of the things i talk about in the end of the piece is that we're all looking for uh even the best relationship can't give us uh fully because we're fallen and fragile and faltering and finite uh but what we're looking for is unconditional love which i think really can only come from the love of god and so right. if if we fi- if you find yourself uh, in a place where your own sense of spirituality leads to uh, you loving yourself, warts and all, uh, you know, and 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 you really, then you're going to have an easier time uh, bringing less to the front end because you're you're not going to be looking out of the experience for something it can't deliver anyway. Yeah, and I think this is just a, an also an opportunity to remind churches and church leaders. To be sensitive, particularly if you kind of have one of those traditional program-driven churches where so much is is about family, whether it be youth group, children's ministry, whatever, to, to be really sensitive to the fact that, first of all, that is more of a – that's not traditional family values. It's more like traditional 
second century pagan Roman values, if you actually look at the origins. The, the good some, old days. Yeah, the good old awful days. And I, th I think, to you know, if, if we only get unconditional love through God, then the highest form of love that comes close to that, or, or the, maybe the chief mitigator of that, is friendship. At least according to Thomas Aquinas and many others, you know, that even if you have the most amazing romance in the world, if you're going to sustain that romance, you, you, you need to evolve into a, a deep and abiding friendship. And so I think being really sensitive to people who find themselves uh, never having found the right person or who find themselves single again, to really be sensitive and open to, to being friends and caring for that person. You know, I, I don't know how many times people have told me that whether it be because of a death or because of a divorce, that they, they lose over half their friends. And a lot of that has to do with people not knowing quite, not doing the work to figure out how, how do we reestablish this new friendship. And whether it's a divorce or whether it's the death, there's a deep loss there. And I, I think that might be one of the, one of the most uh, unchristian and, 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 and tragic things that happen every day for thousands, if not millions of people. And it's even worse when it's done in a backdrop of a community of faith that's always talking about the unconditional love of Jesus. Yeah, unconditional love of Jesus, unless you're single. Yeah. And that's the one condition. That, yeah, I, you know, it's funny because you mentioned this earlier, and we had Paul Zoll on our podcast. He said that, you know, if he, if he was looking for love, if he was alone, he would get, have a friend. Try to, but yeah, I think that I think that is great advice. If people were better friends to single people, like I think that that's that need, that's the context for which people could actually connect you with somebody that maybe, I mean, in an age of like where we're so fragmented, right? Where we play one place, work another place, live another place, worship another place, our families over here. Like, it's a real gift to have somebody that knows you well enough to know somebody else that you might connect with. Right, right. I think particularly, too, I mean, I, I think there are a lot of folks who who maybe come out of bad relationship, who actually find their voice in their second life, uh, who are doing really well. Also, just to encourage those kind of people to be aware of the people around you who may not be doing so well. And I think, you know, again, it all comes down to uh, how do we create genuine community? Um, uh, I've, I, this is my favorite Kierkegaard quote. But anything that you can lose in this world cannot ultimately give you happiness. If you are looking to a temporal relationship or even a, in some levels a temporary role, I mean, as a parent, uh, how many people struggle when they're no longer the essential component of their kid's life? So even that, you know, you never stop caring about your kids. You never stop having a relationship with them. But even that role is, is, is such a brief part of, of, of your life. And so we're constantly losing the roles that give us our greatest meaning. And I think even if we approach dating with both freedom and realism, in other words, this is a limited, contingent kind of existence. Uh, how do I bring my measured expectations to it? Yeah, people always say, don't be so heavenly minded, you're nowhere really good. But C.S. Lewis said, unless you're totally heavenly minded, he said, if you're heavenly minded, you get earth thrown in. 
But if you're only earthly minded, you lose both. Yeah. You know, I love that passage in Second Corinthians where it's, you know, Paul's on his way to make the big point that God was in Christ reconciling the world. But he says, we no longer look at anyone from a worldly perspective. Yeah, from a human point of view. Yeah, yeah. human perspective, depending on how you translate. I think you start out by trying not to look at yourself that way. Yeah. And then also, you know, as you approach this kind of strange, brave, new world, um, walk gently with yourself and with others. Finally 